Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week's talk, Menopause Management in 2016, was presented by Dr. Stephanie Fabian at the Clinical Reviews Conference held on November 14, 2016 in Rochester, Minnesota. And I'd like to welcome my colleague, Dr. Um, Stephanie Fabian. She came to Mayo from Texas, um, and she headed our uh, women's health section, but she just recently stepped down to head our um, executive medicine section, so you can see her leadership there was really appreciated, and she's gonna talk with us about menopause management today, thanks. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you to the course directors for inviting me. So I'm here to talk to you today about menopause management in 2016. I have no disclosures, oh, except for one. We just published the Mayo Menopause Solution, which just came out in April, and is available widely wherever books are sold. So the objectives of my talk are, one, to determine appropriate candidates for the use of menopausal hormone therapy, incorporating the latest scientific evidence, to understand differences between various formulations and routes of administration of menopausal hormone therapy, and to describe non-hormonal options for management of menopausal symptoms. So uh, I'm, this is an interesting quote. It's from the Journal of Women's Health a couple of years ago, and they talk about competency in menopause management, whither goest the internist, and I would say that we could also substitute family medicine specialist here. But what they go into is that factors entering into the decision-making process regarding menopause management are increasingly complex and involve consideration of effects on multiple systems and potential disease-related events. These considerations suggest that internists and family medicine specialists trained to evaluate and integrate factors influencing multiple organ systems should re-engage in menopause management and finally, the authors propose that the multidimensional expertise that characterizes the internist and family medicine specialist may provide the most comprehensive approach to menopause management. Well, you may ask why is this important and why am I telling you this, but the scope of the issue is immense. We estimate that there will be over 50 million menopausal women in the United States by the year 2020. And this, as opposed to the 1900s, when we didn't reach the age of menopause, the average life expectancy in 1900 was age 50. Now, we are spending about 40 to even 50% of our lifespan post-menopause. 75% of women will experience vasomotor symptoms, so hot flashes and night sweats. And this is staggering. Over 30% will have moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms for 10 years or more. The mean duration, we used to tell women, hey, don't worry about it, this is going to be all over in a couple of years. Not so. Mean duration of vasomotor symptoms is now known to be seven to nine years. This results in higher health care costs and lost productivity that's well documented. So we'll start with a case here. 54-year-old woman, her last period was two years ago. She has persistent hot flashes interfering with her daily activities and sleep. She tried soy, but it wasn't effective. She's exhausted at work and reports emotional lability. Her past medical history, she's healthy, she's not on any medications. 
no family history of venous thromboembolism or breast cancer, physical exam and mammogram are negative. So question, what would you recommend for this patient? A, no treatment, but reassure that symptoms don't last a long time. And if you pick this one, I'm going to come out there and get you. Um, B, SSRI, SNRI. C, menopausal hormone therapy. D, gabapentin, or E, cognitive behavioral therapy. And please select your response. And you should get this one, because I already gave it to you. And yes, you did, but 35% of you still said SSRI, SNRI. So let's talk a little bit more about how we go about thinking about this. So the answer is menopausal hormone therapy. So when we're thinking about options for managing menopausal symptoms, we think about estrogen. There's also non-hormonal prescription therapies like SSRI, SNRI. There are non-prescription remedies. There are mind-body techniques. And there's lifestyle modifications. So how do we go about counseling our patients? We are now looking at an era where we can finally individualize and personalize menopause, man, um, menopause management. So let's talk about in whom or how we might go about thinking about this. We need to focus on, first, what symptoms are the, is the patient having? How bothersome are they? How much do they interfere with her daily activities? We're going to think about her medical history and her overall health. We're going to think about a baseline risk assessment, which will include, does she have any contraindications to hormone therapy? What are her cardiovascular risks? What are her breast cancer risks? And finally, what are her personal preferences? So this is a very busy slide, but all I want you to notice about this, this is stages of reproductive aging, or the straw stages. That pink triangle, the inverted triangle with zero, is the final menstrual period. So you don't know you're in menopause until you've been in menopause for a year, right? Because menopause is no period for a year, so you really don't know that you're there until it's been a year. So look down where the circle is, and you'll see that vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes and night sweats, really start before that final menstrual period ever gets there. Then they continue after the final menstrual period. I also want you to notice that far right bottom corner, and that is where urogenital symptoms really don't start kicking in after menopause until about kind of the one to two year mark post-menopause. So vasomotor symptoms are earlier. Um, the genitourinary symptoms tend to come on about a year or two later. Again, a busy slide, but I'm going to walk you through this. So this is the Women's Health Initiative study that was published in 2002 that really changed everything about how we think about hormone therapy. This is a slide that is only relevant to the 50 to 59-year-old group of women. On the right-hand side of the slide are benefits. On the left-hand side are risks. And this is number of women per thousand per five years of use. The solid black bar is estrogen only, and the hashed bar is estrogen plus progestogen. And again, what I want you to notice is there's more on the right-hand side of the graph than the left-hand side of the graph for women in their 50s. There's also fewer, or fewer risks and greater benefit associated with using estrogen only than estrogen plus progestogen. That's all I want you to know from this one. So who is the best candidate for menopausal hormone therapy? How do we think about this? In general, it's women in that 50 to 59-year-old age group, so women under 60 and within 10 years of menopause, 
who have bothersome symptoms. So first, you're not going to give menopausal hormone therapy to somebody who doesn't really have any symptoms. It's used for women who are bothered by hot flashes, night sweats, mood changes, sleep disturbance, and there's a whole host of other symptoms, including even joint complaints. Second-line therapy for bone density concerns, so low bone density or osteoporosis, it's second-line treatment. They have a personal preference to use hormone therapy. They don't have excess cardiovascular or breast cancer risk, and there are no contraindications. So the next few slides, I have to credit my colleague, Dr. Cynthia Stunkel, who is the chair of the um, hormone therapy writing group for the Endocrine Society when they published their hormone therapy guidelines last year. So contraindications to hormone therapy, possibility of pregnancy, well, that one's an easy to, one to solve, so you get a pregnancy test. Undiagnosed vaginal bleeding shouldn't be undiagnosed for long, right? So that can be sorted out. Other contraindications are estrogen-sensitive cancers of breast or endometrium, history of stroke or MI, history of DVT or pulmonary embolism, and liver dysfunction or disease. So next you're going to think about, okay, they don't have any contraindications. Next, let's think about cardiovascular risk. And this comes from ACC AHA uh, guidelines. So if they're low risk, they have less than 5% 10-year cardiovascular disease risk, menopausal hormone therapy is okay. In the moderate 5 to 10% 10-year risk, you might want to choose transdermal. And we'll talk a little bit more about why transdermal might be preferable to oral, particularly in women who are at slightly higher risk of heart disease. And then the high-risk group, the greater than 10% 10-year risk, we may want to consider avoiding menopausal hormone therapy. So we're next going to think about breast cancer risk. If a woman's risk for breast cancer is moderate or high, enough to where her risk would qualify her for risk-reducing medications, we might want to consider other options. If her risk is acceptable, we can continue on. And we use the five-year NCI, or IBIS Breast Cancer Risk Assessment, to determine low, medium, or high. So low would be less than 1.67 five-year risk, and menopausal hormone therapy is okay. An intermediate risk, we would consider caution. And a high risk greater than 5% 5 five-year risk, we would consider avoiding menopausal hormone therapy. So next, we need to know, does she have a uterus? If she does not, you can use estrogen by itself. If she does, you can use estrogen plus a progestogen or one of the new T6, which is tissue selective estrogen complex. And the only one on the market right now is conjugated equine estrogens combined with bazadoxifene marketed under the brand name Duavy. And finally, Tibolone, which is not available in the United States, only in Europe. So it's important after I said all these, do this, don't do that, you've got to take into account patient preference. So the Endocrine uh, Society guideline has a statement that says, as the impact of severe menopausal symptoms on quality of life may be substantial, however, there are instances in which a woman with a history of heart disease or breast cancer, for example, will choose to accept a degree of risk that might be considered to outweigh the benefits of menopausal hormone therapy. 
And an accepted philosophy is that a fully informed patient should be empowered to make a decision that best balances benefits to that individual when weighed against potential risks. So we have to take into account what makes the most sense for the patient, and patient preferences do matter. And as our last speaker said, there is an app for that. So there is an app for menopause management as well. It's the MenoPro app uh, by the North American Menopause Society. It's free. And there are entry points for both the healthcare provider and for the patient on this app. And it does walk you through some of these same risk assessments that we've been talking about. Um, there's also a way to print the assessment so that you can give it to the patient. So let's talk a little bit about route of administration. Transdermal may have safety advantages over oral. Why is that? Well, with transdermal, you avoid first pass metabolism through the liver, so there's less effect on clotting factors, on blood pressure, on triglycerides, on C-reactive protein, and on sex hormone binding globulin, all of which may provide some advantages of transdermal over oral. Um, we published this just last year in JCEM. Uh, it's a systematic review and meta-analysis on oral versus transdermal estrogen and the risk of venous and arterial thrombotic events. And our conclusion was that low-quality evidence from 15 observational studies suggests that compared to transdermal estradiol, oral estrogen therapy may be associated with increased risk of VTE, DVT, and possibly stroke but not MI. So again, more evidence to suggest that there may be some safety advantages to using estrogen delivered through the skin than by the mouth. A word about custom compounded hormones, um, and I know your patients are probably asking you a lot about these. I know mine are. This is the Endocrine Society guideline, but I can tell you a lot of other medical societies, including the North American Menopause Society, have similar statements. We recommend using menopausal hormone therapy preparations approved by the FDA and comparable regulating bodies outside of the United States and recommend against the use of custom compounded hormones. This is an ungraded best practice statement. So it's important to note when your patients ask you about these custom compounded hormones that there are many FDA approved bioidentical hormone therapy preparations. And the ones that are estrogen include oral 17-beta estradiol. There are many cutaneous products of 17-beta estradiol, including patches, gels, sprays, and emulsions. There's vaginal estradiol preparation, including cream, ring, and tablet. And finally, there's progesterone in the form of oral micronized progesterone. So this is straight out of our Ask Mayo expert um, ad internal advice, um, where to start. We get this question all the time, and so this is a nice guide on, okay, I have a patient in front of me, I've decided she's an appropriate candidate for hormone therapy, what do I do, how much do I give? And so if a woman goes through early menopause, less than the age of 40 to 45 years, whether or not she's having symptoms, 
let me just say that again, she doesn't have to be having lots of vasomotor symptoms, we would still use menopausal hormone therapy unless there's a clear contra contraindication to its use. And we would start with a full hormone therapy dose aiming for getting this woman back into the premenopausal range. So we would start with an estradiol patch of 0.1, and we would recommend continuing this hormone therapy at least until the natural age of menopause, 51 to 52 years. Now, if she has a uterus, she needs a progestogen. If she doesn't have a uterus, you can use estrogen alone. If a woman, however, is coming to you and she's 48, 49, 52, somewhere in that late 40s, early 50s, and she has symptoms, then we typically would start with maybe a 0.05 milligram patch and uh, use a progestogen if she, is, if she has a uterus. If she doesn't, she can use estrogen alone. If she's in her later 50s, we would even start with a lower dose. And for the women who are in their late 40s, early 50s, and beyond, you need to reassess their hormone therapy needs on an annual basis. So the clinical pearl here is when considering options for menopausal hormone therapy, use a shared decision-making approach with regard to formulation, route of administration, and starting dose and tailor therapy to symptoms, treatment goals, risks, and the individual situation. Okay, so we have a second case. This is a 52-year-old woman. She's a Gravida 2 para 2. She has a history of invasive breast cancer. She's status post-surgery in chemotherapy and radiation, and presents to your office with moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms, and asks you what her options are for treatment. Question, there is convincing evidence for the efficacy of which of the following for management of vasomotor symptoms? A, acupuncture, B, exercise, C, black cohosh, D, SSRI, SNRI, or E, phytoestrogens? And please select your answer. Okay, so 76% of you said SSRI, SNRI, and that is correct. So when we're thinking about non-hormonal therapies for vasomotor symptoms, you don't know it, but you're weighing this little scale in your head every time your patient's in front of you. What's the potential effectiveness versus what are the costs? What's the time and effort for the patient? What are the adverse effects? What are the, what are the studies? So what's the evidence? And are there potential medication interactions? This is something you go through in your head before you do anything in terms of prescribing medications for a patient. So placebo response in non-hormonal vasomotor symptom trials. Just take a guess. What's the placebo response in these trials? Throw a number out there. 40 is very good. OK, so it's high. And it's estimated between 20 and 60%. And we know that more, the more anxious a woman is, she's probably on the higher end of that scale. But when we talk about any medication for management of vasomotor symptoms that's not hormonal, it has to exceed about 40% effectiveness to get past placebo effect. So non-hormonal therapies for vasomotor symptoms. NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, published a position statement just last year that was very helpful. And in the recommended category, we have cognitive behavioral therapy, which some of you might not have heard of for management of vasomotor symptoms. That's kind of a new one. Another new one is clinical hypnosis, and we will talk a little bit more about that as well. SSRI, SNRI, 
gabapentinoids, and clonidine. Now, in the recommended with caution, additional study is needed category, we have weight loss, mindfulness-based stress reduction, S equal derivatives of soy, and stellate ganglion block. In the not currently recommended due to negative, inconclusive, or insufficient data, and don't gas because really this is not harmful necessarily to the patient, but uh, just not enough evidence to suggest that they're beneficial, we have cooling techniques, avoidance of triggers, exercise, yoga, paced respirations, relaxation, over-the-counter supplements and herbal therapies, acupuncture, and chiropractic interventions. So again, it's not that, for example, exercise is harmful to your patients, it's just probably not that effective for management of vasomotor symptoms, although there are many other benefits to exercise. Same for paced respirations. We don't have the data to suggest that these really do a lot. And although it makes sense to use cooling techniques, fans, wicking sheets, and, and cooling pillows, and all of that, um, one, there's not a lot of data, and two, let me assure you, your patients have already tried that by the time they get to you. So let's go back over the recommended uh, therapies that are on this non-hormonal list, and we'll talk about a couple. So the cognitive behavioral therapy, again, this is a pretty new concept. Clinical hypnosis I'm going to talk about as well. So there's level one evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy. And as you might expect, it's not getting at the root of why people have hot flashes, so it's reducing their symptoms but not their frequency. So they're not as bothered by their vasomotor symptoms, even if they still have them. There's been two randomized controlled trials, one in breast cancer survivors and one in peri- and postmenopausal women. And there was both a self-guided and a group CBT um, group in that, in that one. Psychoeducation is included, as is pace breathing, and cognitive behavioral strategies. So what they found was that both studies showed clinically significant improvement after six months compared with usual care, and that self-guided CBT was as effective as group CBT. Um, in self-guided, there was a self-help book that they completed over four weeks, two sessions with a psychologist, some daily homework, a CD for daily relaxation and paced breathing. And at the reference at the bottom of this slide, you can actually get these workbooks online, so patients can do these at home. Now, for clinical hypnosis, there is also level one evidence, and this is, again, a new thing. Evidence is still limited, but promising. What they use is a deeply relaxed state and individualized mental imagery or suggestions. So, for example, they use um, think about water, cooling things, ice. If someone's afraid of water, we certainly don't use water as a recommendation, but they might use a pretty mountain scene. Um, there are two randomized controlled trials, one in breast cancer survivors and another in women with at least seven hot flashes a day. And an unpublished study by Deb Barton, who was at Mayo but is now at Michigan, um, is very promising. She did one session with the patient in the office and recorded the session on a CD for the patient, sent them home with it, and they could play it back and self-hypnotize, and it actually showed uh, some effectiveness. So that makes this uh, treatment much more scalable if you don't need somebody who is skilled in uh, administering hypnosis. So SSRI, SNRI, level one to level two evidence. So this is only SSRI, SNRI can take hot flashes. Um, they're about 40% effective, so 40% reduction. Hormone therapy, on the other hand, will take hot flashes down by 90 to 95%. So you have to keep in mind kind of where we're aiming for, and I always tell my patients, 
This isn't going to take them all away. This will probably take the edge off a little bit. So mild to moderate improvement in vasomotor symptoms. Paroxetine salt, um, 7.5 milligrams. This is the only FDA-approved non-hormonal treatment for hot flashes. And this is marketed under the name Brisdell. Citalopram, 10 to 20 milligrams. Escitalopram, same dose. Venlafaxine, 37.5 to 75 milligrams. Desvenlafaxine, 100 to 150. If you'll notice, these are all relatively low dose for antidepressants, so it doesn't take a high dose um, for hot flash control. Um, also keep in mind that you're going to look at other benefits to these medications. So for example, if you have a woman with a mood disturbance or some anxiety symptoms that are more prominent, you might want to use one of these medications as a non-hormonal treatment. Um, the gabapentinoids, typically we start with 300 to 900 milligram a day. There's level one evidence for gabapentin. Pregabalin, we have level two evidence. And think about, again, what other things can you treat with this medication? So I would use it for somebody who's having trouble sleeping and dose it primarily at night. Or if they're having pain issues or migraine, this would be a good option. Clonidine, there's level two evidence. It's used at 0.1 milligram daily. However, this is less effective than SSRI, SNRI, or gabapentin, and it has a lot more side effects, so we really don't use it that much anymore. I will anecdotally tell you about another treatment that is probably that you'll probably hear about in the next couple of years. There was just a study published um, this month, as a matter of fact, in menopause um, on oxybutynin. And so this is ditropan, the bladder drug. Um, so while there is a lot of data in the sweating literature on oxybutynin, it's just starting to hit the hot flash literature. And this study did show effectiveness of 10 milligrams XL of oxybutynin, and we have now opened a, a clinical trial at Mayo looking at lower dose, 2.5 milligrams of the immediate release twice a day, escalating to 5 milligrams twice a day. So that might also be a good option and is relatively inexpensive. Um, side effects are drying, of course. So the clinical pearl here is that many lifestyle and non-hormonal treatments are available for management of vasomotor symptoms in women who are unwilling or unable to use systemic hormone therapy. And I'll finish a little bit early, so I'll give you a little bit of time back. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You can find today's featured talk, along with videos from our world-class medical conferences, at mayotalks.com. New talks are added weekly, so stop by often and let us know what you think. Mayo Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.